Please be seated. Well, my past three sermons have covered Matthew chapter 13. We covered the whole chapter during those three Sundays. And there we focused on a number of parables that Jesus taught in that chapter. Well, today we're fast-forwarding just a little bit, still in the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to pick up in chapter 18. Uh, This is actually the next parable that Matthew's account of the Gospel records. And in terms of the layout of Matthew's Gospel, I, I thought it might be helpful to know that all, you know, amongst the story of Jesus's life and ministry, Matthew includes five teaching discourses throughout his gospel account. Um, these are kind of like five sections or five chunks where Jesus just kind of goes on a, a teaching spree almost in a way. Uh, the first is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, so three whole chapters. Uh, this is what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The second teaching discourse is Matthew chapter 10. The third is Matthew 13, which, again, spent three Sundays walking through that one and all the parables in that one. The fourth teaching discourse is chapters 18, 19, and 20. We're going to pick up on this one today. And then the last one is Matthew 24 and 25. And if you have a red-letter version of the Bible, meaning that everything that Jesus says and speaks is in red letters, it's super helpful. But these are really easy to find because those pages in the red letter Bible are pretty much all red. So you can, just, you can almost just visually see as you're going through Matthew, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one, because it's just a lot of red, not much black. Um, so anyway, just a side note there. So like I said, the uh, last three sermons, we were looking at the third teaching discourse in Matthew 13. But today we're going to pick up with his fourth in chapter 18. But before we read, let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your tender care, for your strength and our weaknesses, and for your grace that sustains us always. Help us to grow and to be challenged by your, church, your truth so that we might better glorify you and testify to your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, It would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow, that's that's some that's something. Right? He keeps going. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus got people's attention sometimes. Probably gets our attention in that too. We'll talk a little bit about that. 
Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, in heaven their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're mainly going to focus today on the parable at the end, the parable of the lost sheep. But first, let's look at a few things prior to that, kind of all the way back up in verse 1. Because it's helpful to consider when, when reading this passage or any passage, one of the first things that's helpful to consider is who is the immediate audience? You know, who, who's in this scene? And so it's Jesus and his disciples. Verse 1 tells us this. But it's also the, the audience, kind of the secondary audience, we might say, is us. Because we have access to this scene. This is why it was written down for posterity, so that we could read and kind of see behind the scenes and, and see what Jesus was teaching amongst his disciples because we too are called to be Jesus' disciples. So we are also the audience as readers and hearers. But the second question for us is, what starts this whole discourse in chapter 18? You know, does anything prompt Jesus' teaching, or does he just wake up one morning and say, hey, i got some things to say. Y'all start writing this down. What sort of context does this passage come out of? And verse 1 tells us, it says, at that time... The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? We mortal humans love to to ponder this question, do we not? Who is the greatest? In the sports world, we we like to talk about the goats, right? Not Not the cute little farm animals, but the goats as in the what? The greatest of all time. Yeah, so we talk about... You know, who is the greatest of all time, you know, quarterback. And actually, uh, this, just the other day, I can't remember if it was Sports Illustrated or if it was ESPN, but they had a video that caught my attention. It was the top ten greatest college quarterbacks of all time. And so they had guys as far back as like Roger Stallback and Doug Flutie and my, Matt Leinart was in there. But ranked as number two on the list was Vince Young, so hook em horns. I know this is more Aggie land. I was, I, was, I was kind of expecting some boos or some, you know, some whoops out there or something. Um, so Vince Young was number two. And the number one, just if, if you're curious, was Tim Tebow with like two national championships and a Heisman and things like that. Anyway, uh, in the NFL, most would probably agree that Tom Brady has made a pretty good case as to being the GOAT. In basketball, the debate between, okay, is it Jordan or is it LeBron? Uh, in the Olympics... Many regard Michael Phelps as the GOAT, the greatest, greatest Olympian of all time, with 28 medals, 23 of those being gold and, and records to go along with it. And it's easy to make these comparisons, you know, in the sports world. But we do this in almost any, any field. You know, we talk about the greatest U.S. presidents of all time. We talk about the greatest military heroes, the greatest painters and poets and writers and actors. 
the greatest architects, inventors, philosophers, and, and for nerdy pastors, we talk about the greatest theologians of all time. You know, so go to lunch with a group of pastors. I'm, it's awesome. But when we think of greatness, you know, we're thinking about things in terms of earthly things and an earthly way of seeing things. And to their credit, to the disciples' credit, they asked Jesus a bigger question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, their perspective is not fixated on this earth, which our understanding of greatness often resides. But even though they're kind of, they're thinking about heaven, their understanding of greatness is still based on this kind of human worldly reasoning. For us, we live in a meritocracy. Greatness is earned by one's accomplishments. Greatness is achieved. It's not just given away. Greatness comes with recognition and prestige and status and fame. So when we think in terms of this, we might assume that the greatest in heaven, you know, the goat of heaven, is someone like the great patriarch Abraham or the great leader and courier of God's law, Moses, or the great King David or, or one of the great prophets, Elijah or Isaiah, Jeremiah or Daniel. And it's interesting, just kind of almost as a, as a side note, in Mark and Luke's account of the gospel, the disciples asked this question to Jesus kind of regarding themselves, amongst themselves, which of them will be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And it's possible that that's what they mean here in their question in Matthew, but it's not explicitly presented that way, so I'm going to leave it a little more open-ended for today's sermon. But regardless... Jesus answered their question. They asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, his answer was actually kind of a, an illustration, a little teaching moment for them. He calls over a child. He puts this child among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So to answer their question about greatness, Jesus calls forth a child. A child of, you know, no name. Does it, does it matter in this parable? This isn't some prince-to-be or something like that. It's, it's a child, an ordinary child. And he says, do you see this little one? Do you see this one who has not pursued greatness for himself? Do you see this little one who's not scrambling to have a better position than those around him? Do you see this little one who's not chasing his own glory or wealth or status or prestige? This little one who's not seeking to be the master of his own domain, but this little one whose happiness and contentment is found in the nurture and care of his parents. These are the ones who are considered great in heaven. And Jesus says, unless you change, that's, that's kind of a, we need to take note of that. Unless we change and become like a child, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, there must be a change that happens. There must be a transformation within us, an exchange of one value system for another. From the value system of this world and our sinful nature 
to that of the righteousness and holiness and humility of Christ. The change calls us to be like children, to become humble, to live with humility, and to be imitators of Christ, not pursuing our own greatness or glory or recognition or popularity, but rather submitting to the greatness of God. When we give up trying to portray this better-than image of ourselves, and rather when we just rest in knowing that we are God's children, and so is the person next to us, and so is the person next to them, that is greatness in God's eyes. Because in that we have not made ourselves great, but we are trusting in the greatness of God. Well, continuing on in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 9. And I'm not going to spend much time here. It, this is a whole sermon in and of itself. Uh, Jesus gives a stark warning for us. That in the human pursuit of our own greatness, we better be careful that we should not cause spiritual harm to another. And there's certainly some intense words used here by Jesus. It's, it's extreme. It's almost just graphic. But Jesus is speaking in hyperbole to try to convey the seriousness of not being a hindrance to another person's spiritual growth. So I hope you don't like leave here and start cutting off appendages. That's not kind of what Jesus has in mind. But Jesus is saying, this is serious, though. How we, how we nurture one, of other, one another's spiritual lives really matters in a serious way. And we should take note of that. And I want to work our way now into the parable that we call the, the parable of the lost sheep. And most Bibles include uh, verse 10 in this section of the parable. You know, if you're looking at your Bible and it has the little, little title sections above, most of the time they stick verse 10 within the, uh, the context of the parable of the lost sheep. And it's an interesting verse says, take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. Again, this is another thing that would be a whole rabbit trail to do a deep dive into. But what it's, this verse is essentially saying, the message is, that these little ones Jesus is referring to are important. It's, it's almost like they have the secret service of angels over them. And I also want to note, real quick before we kind of get to the rest of it, is verse 11. What do you notice about verse 11? Oh, yeah, it's not there. Okay, I didn't just like omit this, be like, I didn't like that one, I'll take it out. Um, I, I just thought if you, if you happen to notice that, I thought I'd, I'd mention this. Because um, it's not there in most translations, and if you're curious why verse 11 is skipped... You can look at the footnotes in your Bible, and it'll probably say something to the effect of some ancient manuscripts include the phrase, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. So Bible translators, as, as they are looking at all these ancient manuscripts that we have in the New Testament, and um, they're looking for the oldest and most reliable, kind of closest to the original that we can get. And some manuscripts would include this little line, which is actually found in the Gospel of Luke. So it doesn't change the meaning of the text or anything like that. I thought I'd just know that or note that in case you were looking at, like, okay, verse 10 and then verse 12. What happened to 11? So that's, that's kind of what that's about. Maybe a Sunday school class lesson sometime. 
But let's jump into the parable of the lost sheep itself. So Jesus says, what do you think? She love those kind of open-ended rhetorical questions. Well, what do you think? He's like, oh, no, he's about to do something. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if, and if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. This parable, as, as a lot of Jesus' parables, it paints a pretty simple mental picture, doesn't it? Okay? There's a shepherd in a field. We all kind of have a visual that comes to mind. And he's looking after a hundred sheep. Okay? Shepherd, field, sheep. And then one of them wanders off. And so the shepherd leaves the 99, goes and looks for that one, and finds it and returns and rejoices. Like it paints kind of this nice, kind of happy, simple picture in our minds. But now let's unpack it. Who's the shepherd? Well, it doesn't specifically say, but our first assumption is God or Jesus. And who's the stray sheep that was lost? Well, here verse 14 helps us. Verse 14, it says, So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. He's, he's comparing the little ones that he was talking about all the way back in, you know, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 18, to now this sheep that was, that was lost. And that's why I began this sermon, not with just the, the parable text, but all the way back in verse 1, because Jesus has been using this, this even all the way to this illustration, as this moment where he's teaching his disciples, and he's asking, or and he's answering their question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The greatest is the ones who are the least, the little ones. The ones who Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The little ones are those who know their need for the shepherd. The ones who rely on God and devote themselves to his care. In the parable, who assigns worth and value to the lost sheep? It's kind of an interesting question, maybe. But it's the shepherd. The shepherd determines that that sheep is valuable. The shepherd determines that that sheep is worth enough to him to go and to seek that sheep out. I mean, the shepherd could have said, eh, I still have 99 I mean, what's really a 1% loss? That's, that's not that much. You know, especially if you think of all the extra work involved, I'm going to have to travel and look for it, do all this and that. I'll, I'll just handle, I'll just take the 1% loss. But that's not what the shepherd does because of the value that the shepherd places on that one sheep. We have to first realize that we are the sheep that have been lost like Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And you might be here this morning for one message and one message only. And that is that God loves you. And God has endowed you with great value. Our great shepherd came into this world where his wayward sheep were to bring them back under his loving care through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. God did this because you are valuable to him. Not because he needs you or needs us, but that he simply loves us 
as a parent loves a child. The only real worth as it is, is, is that the only real worth that we have is that which is des- designated by God. In a worldly mentality, you know, we attribute worth or importance according to someone's ability or performance. You know, we think about the goats, right? We attribute worth according to power and wealth. We attribute worth according to recognition or fame or popularity. But that is all based on false realities. The truth is that the value of all those things can fluctuate day to day just like the stock market. And they can all even come crashing down. But what Jesus was saying to his disciples and to us is that we cannot impose worldly valuations on true spiritual worth, the worth of our souls, because the world misunderstands what is of great value, because it's based on a completely different system. The truth is this, true worth comes from God. God assigns true worth, and isn't that the message we need to hear? True greatness in God's sight is found in being poor in spirit and in humility. It's found in a devotion and a reliance on God and in loving God and loving neighbor and in being like a child held in the arms of our Father. These are the things that God values above all else, and these are the things that ultimately truly matter. When we try to assign worth with a, with a false system, we do kind of one of two things. Either we think of ourselves more important than, or valuable than someone else, that we're better than, or we feel like others are more important than we are, and we treat ourselves as, as less than, and we struggle to feel value. But what is it to God if someone is worth $2 or $2 million? What is it to God if someone can be on the cover of Vogue or not? What is it to God whether you're on the, you know, the A team, the B team, the C team, or no team at all? Until we realize what is valuable to God and find our joy in Him, we will always be living in a lie and chasing futility and the sense of false worth. What matters to God is a sincere and humble heart devoted to loving Him and extending that love toward others. And this can be hard for us. When we think about, you know, just in the reality of our lives, this can be hard to us, hard for us because we have to surrender something. As Jesus said earlier, we have to change. It's a constant call to be changed because we so often fall back into worldly ways of thinking. But when we are reminded of how God sought us in our waywardness, we see the world and the people in it more like God does. When we understand God's value system, and his value system becomes our value system, how then do you think we treat those around us then? We treat them with worth. We treat them with dignity. We treat them with love and care. We are called to be God's shepherds in his kingdom. We are to see the God-given value in each person's soul as equal to our own. We are to be careful not to be a stumbling block for others, to seek out the lost, to be defenders and protectors of the little ones. And when we do this, we show forth God's love. So 
we ought to remember that in spite of our waywardness, God loves us. And in spite of the waywardness of others, God loves them. So how can we be shepherds in the kingdom of God? I think God calls us all to what I'm going to call pastoral evangelism. Sometimes we think of evangelism as just, you know, going, maybe knocking on doors and say, hey, have you heard of a Jesus? But pastoral evangelism. And I don't mean pastoral as in it's just limited to pastors, you know, not just me and Harry just going out and doing this. But the word pastor comes from the Latin word for shepherd. I think the best evangelism we can do, you know, it's not just advertising our worship times in a magazine or promoting flashy programming, but simply and truly caring for one another within this flock and for those outside of this flock that need to know the love of Jesus in their lives. It's a call for us all to be personal and available and nurturing and encouraging and being intentional to let others know that they are valuable in your sight, but more importantly, that they are valuable in God's sight. And it's showing them and telling them, you know what? They're remembered. They are valued. They matter both to you and to God. And with that goal, we hope that we can bring more back into the fold, back into the flock, under the care of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. In this time of offering, um, I'll offer a prayer as, as Kristen and the musicians get ready. But I want us to consider how God has extended his love toward us. How so often as, as the, the hymn, I love the hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But God calls us again and again to be his people, to come under his, his blessing, his care. And how can we invite others to join us here? Let us pray. God, we thank you. God, what else can we do but just to thank you for your love and grace, for your mercy and care? Lord, we thank you that you are our great shepherd. Lord, that you have sought us in our waywardness. Lord, help us to remember how much you love us. Lord, the price that you paid for us through your son Jesus on the cross. Lord, help us to always remember that we have not earned this or merited it on our own, that we have not uh, secured this because of our own greatness, but we have been uh, benefactors of this because of your greatness. So help us always to live with humility and love as we seek to shepherd others. In your name, amen.